0: Uh, this is the uh, Wednesday, December 12, 2018 edition of our little weather show, show number 258. And tonight we have with us Dr. Heather Hollenbeck. Uh, She is with the uh, National or the NOAA Hurricane Research Division. Also, uh, she is a hurricane hunter and has flown into um, several storms here in the past couple of years. So we're excited to hear about Heather's uh, exploration into all these hurricanes and exactly what they do and all the data that they gather to help us um, formulate and get our forecasts better for hurricanes so uh, we're happy to have heather with us tonight this is a live broadcast so uh, we'd love for you uh, to interact with us throughout the show we are streaming live can't talk tonight live on facebook live periscope and our youtube page and if you're listening on our podcast Uh, We'll let uh, Heather um, share some information, maybe how you can get in touch with her or um, the uh, research division um, if you have any questions. So we'd love for you to interact and send any questions you have uh, for us tonight. And so uh, we have all scathed and scattered and whatever else you want to call it out of this winter storm uh, that the uh, Southeast has experienced. A lot of snow here in western North Carolina uh, in central North Carolina, some ice in the Charlotte area, and then a lot of rain down uh, in the coastal areas. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, towards the, uh, the end of our show um, for the last 15, 20 minutes or so, we'll kind of recap what um, went on throughout the Carolinas during our winter storm. So stick around for that. Uh, before we uh, bring in our uh, guest tonight, I do want to turn it over to Shay. We're going to kind of transition out of our tropical updates more into our inso updates talking about el nino or la nina and what phase we're in and with that i'm going to toss it to shay gibson he's going to give us the latest information in that department shay
1: hi scotty thank you very much yeah so el nino we are still on the cusp we're, we're still neutral phase uh, we are expected to slide into el nino uh, by winter of 2018-19 so the uh, monthly report has not come out from the inso diagnostics from the CPC yet. So we're waiting on that to happen. The last one was November the 8th. I'll go ahead and share this real quick. Uh, this is our Nino index. This is the El Nino region in the Pacific that we watched the most for uh, the, the readings. And it's showing a pretty strong signal with warmer waters. And what you're looking for here is this plus five degrees Celsius above normal uh, as a constant and over a longer period of time to uh, basically phase this into El Nino. So it looks like we're pretty close. I mean, there's a little, there's a short drop off, but that may come back up. Uh, we look at the INSO discussion from November the 8th. And like I said, we haven't seen the December one yet. That should be coming out very shortly, but we still are in El Nino watch. We scroll down, I won't get into the meat and potatoes of it, but uh, the plume view shows the forecast for El Nino. You follow this green line right here, uh, shows a pretty strong signal for keeping this in El Nino. And it could be a rather strong El Nino if some of these higher, uh, these models at the top here verify Uh, so we'll wait and see what does that mean for us it means basically uh, the US impacts in a typical El Nino setup means wetter uh, a wetter pattern for the southeast and typically cooler so there's some sort of an understood cooler temperature gradient that rides along the northern side of this wetter pattern Uh, this doesn't always verify exactly as this map shows but this is just general guidance but it is backed up by the fact that if we look at the jet stream this is the subtropical jet here to the south which streams moisture aloft in our atmosphere and keeps things wet. We've seen a wet pattern in the last few weeks, including a winter storm with some cold air that dropped down from Canada. And if we go forward, we see this subtropical jet continuing to provide moisture up into the southeast. We have a little bit of an upper low by the end of this week, into this weekend for another wet pattern. And then as we get beyond that, we see the subtropical jet making another connection to the Pacific. So it looks like we're gonna stay on the uh, moist side over the next week or so, uh, maybe even further than that. And this is pretty much a constant pattern. We go back to our one month outlook this is uh for december 2018 from NOAA, and we show an above average temperature range for the last half of december so if we're looking for a break from cooler weather it looks like this could be our next 30 day outlook with a warmer pattern than normal but also we have above average precipitation just what i showed you with that subtropical jet so that's kind of what we're looking for is a maybe a wetter pattern but warmer pattern for the last half of december as we get into january uh, we're not entirely sure yet but we have to uh, keep that in mind. So here's another one from Tallahassee, just showing a graphic of a basic El Nino with cooler, wetter pattern for the southeast. We're going to continue to watch this because it's one of these things, one of these setups where you get enough moisture riding along to the south and up into the southeast. Then you get these cold air events driving down to the southeast. It's just a matter of time for this mix. We just saw that recently. So uh, if you're upstate South Carolina, western North Carolina, and even, of course, North Carolina, you definitely got a taste of, of that in there you know, most likely it won't be the last one that we see. So, and I wouldn't say by the end of December, but as we get into January, when we get to the, the middle of winter and to the heart of it, we'll probably see more of these winter events. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. We'll be looking for that latest INSO diagnostic discussion to find out if they actually push us into El Nino. Um, hard to say if they're going to do it right now, but we'll
0: keep watching, Scotty, back to you. Shay, so you made a lot of people's ears perk up when you said that may not have been the last winter storm. So, uh, I know a lot of folks here in the Carolinas are interested in that. So uh, that's definitely something we'll watch. And Shayla's talking about the, uh, the rainmaker coming up. We're also going to hit on that because uh, as Melissa and I were talking about earlier, that could cause some more impacts here in the Carolinas. Before we do that, I do want to bring in our guest, Dr. Heather Hollenbeck from the, national, uh, the NOAA Hurricane Research Division. Uh, Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So uh, you're a new uh, first time guest with us. So uh, we have that kind of standard first time guest question. We want to know, how did you catch this weather bug? How did you get caught up into this crazy profession that we're all so involved in?
2: Well, like a lot of meteorologists, it started at a young age. Um, I was, I grew up in Wisconsin and we had a lot of severe weather and I was always uh, very terrified any time the tornado sirens would go off, or we had a severe thunderstorm warning. Uh, so I started watching the Weather Channel, and I started learning about the weather. And as I did that, I started to overcome my fears a little bit. Um, and then I discovered hurricanes. You know, being in Wisconsin, you don't really hear about hurricanes too much, <laughs> um, but I really remember the 2004 and 2005 hurricane seasons. Uh, quite vividly from watching the Weather Channel. And, and I learned that you could fly into hurricanes. Um, I had a interest in planes ever since I was young. My dad was a pilot. I grew up around aircraft, and flying in small aircraft. Um, and I love roller coasters and thrill rides. So it was kind of just a natural fit for me. And uh, I made it happen.
3: So Heather Heather and I have uh, been friends for a long time, and I actually met Heather at Florida State University after she had uh, left the Wisconsin winters and, and came down to chase that dream of uh, being a tropical meteorologist. And you had some really unique opportunities and internships that took place during your early part of your career. Um, I know that you did um, some, you did some research um, at the Naval Research Laboratory for a, a little bit of time, and then you also did some internships with the Hurricane Research Division before you actually got your job there. Can you tell us a little bit about those opportunities that you had?
2: Yeah, of course. So um, at and when I was working on my master's degree, I was in contact with a scientist at the Naval Research Lab in Monterey with their tropical cyclone division. And uh, he informed me about a program that the Navy has for undergraduate or for graduate student uh, internships. And so I was able to do that for one summer. I went out to Monterey, California, uh, and I worked with their data assimilation group and uh, working with trying to get data from the Hurricane Hunter aircraft into one of their models. So that was kind of my first uh, experience with the Hurricane Hunter data. And then once I finished my master's degree, I had a scientist from the Hurricane Research Division on my committee for my master's degree, and he said he knew that I was interested in possibly working with the Hurricane Research Division, and he asked me if I'm interested in flying, (laughs) well, I am. <laughs> and so he got me in contact with one of the other scientists at the Hurricane Research Division. And so throughout my Ph.D., I was working very closely uh, with them. And I spent uh, a few months for a couple years uh, early on in my Ph.D. work uh, down here in Miami. And uh, after that, I, once I finished my Ph.D., I got a postdoc with them and moved down here.
3: So, so I mean, yeah, you've had just an just interesting career, just, from, just the from the internships
2: through your through PhD your to, where your to where you are, you right, are now.
3: right now. And, and I know I you know had a have background, background in the uh, uh, aviation, especially with your dad and being around airplanes and everything. But I think what's really interesting is being—you know—that's your your background, and and like you said, you're a little bit of a thrill seeker. This was a natural fit. But it's more than just getting on a plane and just flying into a hurricane. There's a lot of prep that goes into that. And even as a scientist, you have to be prepared to, to you know, or, or help with the preparations of the plane. What are the typical procedures that you have to do even before you actually start your job when you get in the
2: plane? Oh, yes. There's definitely lots of prep that goes into it. So each spring we actually put together our experiment plan. For the season, it's called the hurricane. It's a category five. Um, and As you, see, so, you see, it
0: hasn't really changed much. Really it hasn't
2: changed much over the last several hours. Strong storms. It's like, storms. Like, uh, to find It's seas, answering research questions. Um, so that's kind of the start of our preparation and trying to figure out what types of patterns we might want to follow given a certain type of storm that we have the opportunity to sample. Um, but after that, we then go through training. Um, one of the things that we have to do every five years, which I have to redo this next uh, spring, is water survival training. Uh, this is a, a two-day thing where we uh, get together and we have a course, uh, classroom portion of it, where we learn about you know what to do in the case we have to ditch the aircraft in the ocean, uh, how to survive, if that were to happen, and then we spend a day in the pool learning how to uh, inflate life vests, jump in the pool like you would if you were getting out of the aircraft, learn how to get into a life raft, how to help other people into the life raft. And also, the, one of the important things is uh, we get turned upside down in a cage and we have to get out of a harness and surface. Um, so that's, that's one of the more intense parts of our training. Hopefully, we never have to use it.
1: <laughs> now, Heather, are they, are they blowing fans at you at 100 miles an hour, too?
2: No, they're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I said, hopefully, we never have to use that. Um, I certainly don't want to. Um, no,
3: I don't blame you on that. I wouldn't want to do that either. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it, beyond doing the training, are there other types of flight responsibilities that you have to
2: do before you take off? so before each flight we start off with a pre-flight briefing from the flight director who is the uh flight meteorologist for the plane and they're employee, they're an employee of the aircraft operations center they work full-time with the aircraft um we are the research scientists that then communicate with them and the flight director then communicates to the pilots and the rest of the crew uh, so he he or she gives a briefing about two hours before our flight where we discuss the current state of the storm, the weather that we might encounter en route to the storm, what our science goals are for the mission, uh, what type of flight pattern we're going to be flying, what type of expendables we're gonna be dropping from the aircraft, um, and what other hazards we might encounter along the way. After that, we meet on the plane Um, about an hour before takeoff, and the aircraft commander uh, gives another briefing about the aircraft safety, the procedures that we would follow if something were to happen while we were on the ground versus in the air, um, and then recaps uh, the science mission and uh, any other details that might be uh, pertinent to that particular flight. And then after that, we all uh, take our seats and get on our way.
4: That's pretty awesome. Hey, Heather, I want to jump in here real quick, Melissa. Um, just kind of curious. I know you guys are flying into the aisles of hurricanes. What's the biggest limiting factor with weather with your missions? Is it just time and, and, and you know, actually having to travel out to, you know, to where the hurricane may be? Because uh, weather isn't that big of a concern when you're flying into the aisle of a hurricane.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, where the storm is located definitely dictates how long of a, mission we can fly, how many, uh, what type of science we might be able to achieve during the flight. Um, but we also can sometimes encounter turbulence that uh, is too strong. And if that's the case, we have to uh, decide whether or not it's safe to continue um, the flight. It doesn't happen very often, but it has happened where we've exceeded the g-force limit on the aircraft. Um, And so just for safety reasons we usually will just return to base and they have to do a full inspection of the plane after that
0: and so heather you're you're talking about flying into these hurricanes Uh, a couple of uh storms of uh that we wanted to talk about tonight the first one um i want to hit on is hurricane lane and and actually you was part of a history-making um flight into hurricane lane you it was an all-female Uh, flight crew going in and and flying into Hurricane Lane and getting all kinds of valuable data. So talk to us a little bit about Hurricane Lane and um, what that meant to you all being the first all-female crew.
2: Yeah, so Hurricane Lane was a pretty historic set of missions for us at the Hurricane Research Division. It was actually the first time that we had gone out to Hawaii to fly hurricane missions into, you know for the Central Pacific Hurricane Center. The plane had been out in Hawaii to fly winter storms before, but we had never gone out there to fly a hurricane mission. So uh, that was the first historic part for us. Um, but then our last mission, it was just kind of fortuitous that it worked out that we had our first all-female science crew, which was pretty amazing to get to share with my fellow colleagues. Um, they've been flying into hurricanes uh, for you know over 40, 50 years and uh for this to finally happen was awesome um over the last several years we've added a lot more female scientists to our division and as most of you know meteorology and sciences are predominantly male um and so for this to finally happen was really awesome and we all had a great time and it was a wonderful mission it was category five for a lot of us it was our first flight into a category five storm it was my first Um, So it was was a really, really great experience. And so Hurricane Lane was was a a
0: bigger, a big storm. Um, One maybe uh, folks around here may know uh, a little bit more about uh, is you flew into Hurricane Irma. And that Irma was a a strong hurricane back in the uh, 2017 uh, season that hit South Florida and portions of, of Cuba. So talk to us a little bit about flying into Hurricane Irma and, and uh, your memories from from that mission.
2: Irma was a very different set of missions for us. Uh, being that we're based out of Miami, uh, we were in under threat from Hurricane Irma. So we were all we were being hunted by the hurricane rather than us hunting the hurricane for once. And so a lot of us were busy preparing our own homes and making sure our families were safe, our pets were safe, and all of that. And uh, so we had started flying Irma while it was out uh, west or east of the Caribbean. And uh, when I flew it was when it was just north of Cuba and south of the Bahamas. So... Uh, it was, I believe, September eighth, so two days before it made landfall on the Florida Keys. Uh, so, what happened for me was I had to, I, I stopped in Lakeland halfway, you know, along my evacuation route to Tallahassee. I had both of my cats with me; they were in the hotel room, uh, and you know, we were we were prepared to stay in Lakeland if we needed to um, to ride out the storm, uh, but our my second mission actually ended up getting canceled because the the storm was over Cuba and we couldn't fly. So I ended up being able to make it all the way to Tallahassee before Irma made landfall. But um, that was a really stressful set of missions for us because we were worried about what was gonna happen to our homes. Um, but at the same time, it was really important to us to be able to get out there and collect this really important data on such a strong storm and get that information out to the public in the Hurricane Center. You brought up
0: brought up a great point about Irma and one of your missions being canceled. Um, and this is something the general public may not know about, so I was kind of going to ask this question: uh, Why is it important that you guys can't fly missions once a storm has ever landed? Um Talk to uh, talk to the uh, to us a little bit about why you you guys can't do that.
2: So it really depends on where the storm is located. So we have a lot stricter um, guidelines about where we can fly around Cuba. Um, we have to, unless we have clearance from them, which we don't always have. Most of the time, we don't have. We have to stay a certain distance away from Cuba. So if we can't get through the center of the storm, uh, it's there's not much value that we can add to the data that's already available. Um, So it's kind of a a cost-benefit type of decision in some ways. Um, But the main restriction is that we want to be able to get through the eye eye of the hurricane in order to be able to collect that data on the center of the storm, the strength of the storm, try and help figure out where the storm is moving by getting through the center.
0: And so one more um, storm that's a little bit more recent, and we'll kind of combine um, the Carolinas here, North and South Carolina, um, Hurricane Florence had a big impact on both Carolinas. So uh, I know you was able to fly a mission, uh, some missions into Florence. So talk to us a little bit about um, your uh, your recent memory of that, because it was only a few months ago.
2: Yeah, so I was uh, given the opportunity to go out for a set of research missions into Florence. We went out to Bermuda and were the first we were the first aircraft into Florence. Um, We started flying Florence when, right after it had already been a Category 4 hurricane and weakened. It was a tropical storm for our first flight, and then we caught its rapid re-intensification all the way up to a Category 4 once again. Um, This was a, a great data set that we were able to collect for research purposes, but we were also able to get that information into the forecast models, to the National Hurricane Center, so that the preparations could be made further in advance and the models could provide better forecasts for since it was not entirely clear what the threat to the u.s was going to be at that point and the data that we were able to collect in those missions was able to help clarify that situation and so um, it was really great the timing that we were able to get out there and then the air force was able to pick up those missions. Once we were reassigned to go and fly uh, Isaac in the Caribbean,
1: and that's a that's a great segue into my, what was going to be my next question was rapid intensification. Have you been have you flown a mission into a, a situation where the storm is, is intensifying rapidly? We talk about sea surface temperatures being a major contributor to that. But you're up there in the plane, do you notice anything atmospherically that's contributing to to our eye during these storms, especially with Florence where it was, it it was a little higher in latitude, you wouldn't have thought that would have happened. What did you see?
2: Yeah, we were all quite surprised to see it intensify that quickly. Um, I'm trying to, no, I think that was Lane, we saw really high uh, temperatures in the eye, but um, I know, so one of the things that kind of keys us into Um, If a storm is intensifying is when we see lightning in the storm and it's a lot more turbulent while we're flying through it. Um, The other thing that we were able to notice with Florence with the data that we were collecting was that the wind shear seemed to be dropping off a lot sooner than what the models were indicating and what some of the satellite analyses were showing. And so with the data we were collecting, we were able to see that, especially with uh, one of the instruments on our aircraft called the tail Doppler radar, which gives us a 3D picture of the storm and uh, different levels of wind. And so I think that was one of the keys for Florence's re-intensification.
1: Very interesting. And your your last, what you just said last about um, being able to read the winds leads into my next question. So you're an expert. I read your dissertation or or some of it. I mean, I wasn't able to peruse through all of it. Very, very nicely done, by the way. But they, you talked a lot about surface winds and friction, ocean waves, um, all of these things. And so you use what's called a step frequency microwave radiometer. Um, so talk a little bit about that instrumentation that you're using, how that's gauging wind speeds and, and how that ties in with what the aircraft is relaying back to the NHC. Yeah.
2: So the step frequency microwave radiometer or the SFMR for short, is uh, an instrument that's on both the Air Force aircraft, Hurricane Reconnaissance aircraft and the NOAA aircraft. Um, it's measuring the surface wind speed along the flight track. And the way it works is that the um, s is measuring the temperature of the atmosphere at microwave wavelengths um, of the scene below the aircraft. And there's many things that contribute to that, including the temperature of the ocean surface, um, the rain and other radiation in between the aircraft and the surface. Um, But one of the key factors is that it responds to the change in temperature of the ocean surface that's related to wind speed. And the way that works is that as the wind uh, blows along the ocean surface, it generates waves. And as these waves grow as the wind speed increases they break and create white water on the surface and as the wind speed increases you get more white water on the surface which is uh, emitting at a warmer temperature and so the SFMR is measuring that and when we remove the other factors like the base ocean temperature and anything from in between the aircraft and the surface we can then retrieve the wind speed that's related to that temperature.
0: Say you're on mute, buddy.
1: Oh sorry, Scotty, thank you. Um, thanks for that. I, I was gonna ask, you know, with the waves horsing rather than white capping as they get bigger and bigger, they, they I think that the term is horsing for that. Giant rolling waves, how does that measure to what Your accuracy obviously is better than what the buoy readings. A lot of people look at the the ocean buoys and they say, Oh, the wind speeds are this, but so talk a little maybe add on to that with what the surface friction does to buoy readings.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that factors into the accuracy of buoys is that in these really strong storms, you get really tall waves that are most of the time taller than the buoys themselves. And so one of the things that happens is you get wave sheltering uh, for buoys. So if you have a wave where the peak is here, the trough is here, and the buoys down in the trough, then the wave is completely blocking the wind that's flowing above the ocean surface. Um, and vice versa, you know, when the, you know, the buoy can be at the top of the wave and then uh, you might get Uh, a a wind speed measurement from that, but it's continually moving and so this wave sheltering plays a big role in uh, how the buoys are able to get wind measurements.
4: I'm
1: going to hand this off to
4: Chris now for his question. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, they've been talking a lot, uh, Heather, about you know some of the weather models and, and the sensors you guys have on board your aircraft and I, I'm really curious about the personal side of it and also the aviation side of it so i only gonna hit you with a few questions here nothing too bad but uh, you know you said you grew up in uh, Wisconsin uh, Oshkosh uh, grew up loving aviation what was your mental mindset going into your first OWL uh, mission uh, once you, you know, came over with NOAA? so I mean the
2: first emotion was you know very excited I worked A long time to get to that point Um, but of course there were some nerves you know the unknown not sure entirely what to expect Um, but overall I was just really excited that I was able to contribute to collecting this really important data and uh, that feeling of knowing that what you're doing is having an immediate impact on people preparing for a storm is a really great feeling
4: Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, uh, I see on the Weather Channel a lot, uh, you know, they talk about the different types of aircraft that uh, that are out and flying the missions. And, of course, you know, the Air Force has the WC-130s and you guys have the you know, the older P-3s, but you also have the Gulfstream. It, you know, tell us a little bit about what the Gulfstream does, because I don't think it gets a lot of the notoriety like the P-3s do flying the uh, Iowa missions.
2: No, it doesn't. No, the the Gulfstream four or G-4, um, whose nickname is Gonzo, is a very unique aircraft that uh, we have access to. Um, this is a high altitude jet. It flies up around 40,000 feet. Uh, it flies above and around the hurricane rather than through it. And it is able to drop drop sons. It also has a tail Doppler radar on board. Um, but the drop sons that it's able to release are able to collect data and the portion of the atmosphere that has proven to be incredibly helpful information for the forecast models. It also can fly a lot further and a lot longer than the P3 can. And so the National Hurricane Center uses it to sample the environment out in front of the storm, which can really help the models identify what's going on out in front of it Better and then improve the track forecast for it, along with then also having an impact on the forecast intensity.
4: Oh, that's awesome! So uh, you know, basically saying the Gulf Stream is going to give you like the synoptic picture, if you will, for some of our weather weenies out there. You know, that big synoptic picture, both upstream and, and downstream, surrounding the hurricane. And once you get that data and it's assimilated, what what numerical model prediction does it go into? You know, you hear some so much in the media about you know the Euro, the Nam, the GFS. You know. The, the data that you guys are doing, what's it, you know, where does it show up?
2: So our main purpose is to gather data for the U.S. weather models, primarily the hurricane re- weather research forecast model, HWARF. Um, but this data goes out to the entire world. So um, you have it going into a lot of the U.S. models, the European ECMWF, UK Met models, um, and many other models.
4: Oh, that's really cool! And uh, you know, just curious, as technology continues to advance, you know, with the United States military using drones now in a lot of operations, especially like the surveillance world, uh, is that something NOAA may pursue in the future? You know, something like a Global Hawk or something like that. I'm sure that's a money thing.
2: global hawk. And um, the, over the past uh, five or 10 years, there's been a few field of campaigns that have used the, glo- the NASA global hawk. And that has proven to be incredibly useful since you can actually fly that all the way out to Africa, uh, just off the coast of Africa and sample these easterly waves as they're coming off the coast and get a much better idea of what's going on out there. And then, you know, that data gets into the models. They release drops on from those as well. They've got other remote sensing instruments on it, and um, it's been a very, very useful tool. And uh, there's still some talks on to what the future is of that, but they are doing that. Um, The other unmanned aircraft that we've been using is called a Coyote. This is a small UAS that we released through the drops-on shoot on the P3, Um, and we've flown it into the eyewall of a hurricane. Um, but, uh, the main ones we've done this in are, were hurricane Maria last year. And then this year we actually released one into hurricane Michael. And this aircraft is, um, not a whole lot bigger than it's probably about three to four feet long. Um, and it fits in the drops on tube and you can fly it at very Low altitudes to collect data in the eyewall, and it's proven to be very useful. And that we are definitely continuing to do, and hopefully we will have them in every storm next year. That's the goal.
4: Wow, that'd be incredible. I'm sure that would have really helped out a lot, especially you know as storms get closer and closer to the United States. Uh, I want to jump into one more thing, and I'll kick it back over to Scotty here. But uh, uh, March 19th, I was in Alabama chasing tornadoes, caught a little EF1 outside of Russellville. Happened to uh, look up and might have heard a P3 and noticed it was NOAA. Uh, you guys were flying the P3 around severe storms. Uh, you know what? Tell us a little bit about that, maybe.
2: Yeah, so the P3 doesn't just fly hurricanes. Um, during the winter, it's used in all sorts of experiments. Uh, last year, and I think this coming January again, they're going to Ireland uh, to fly winter storms over the northern Atlantic. Um, the past couple of years, they've flown for Vortex Southeast, uh, where they fly right around her, uh, the thunderstorms and supercells. And apparently those are very bumpy flights <laughs> um, and uh, the P3s flown all over the world for various different experiments.
4: That's really incredible. You know, I'm sure it's bumpy riding into P3 at low level around, you know, such a a massive updraft of a supercell. you know, 120 mile an hour updraft. I uh, I can only imagine what kind of wind shear and turbulence it is, you know, flight altitude. But uh, that's that's some awesome information. You know, if you had some advice for anyone that was, you know, interested in aviation or weather, you know, what would you tell them the route to go to get where you are one day?
2: I would just say to you know, keep pursuing whatever dreams you have. Um, if you meet somebody that you think has an interesting job or might be able to help you out, don't be afraid to speak up and ask them. Um, you know, it really is about who you know. I was very fortunate. I was very shy, but I met the right people and was able to find my way. Um, but just don't give up. You'll, if you really want it, you'll find out how to get there.
4: Uh, that's great advice. And uh, with that, I'll take it back over to Scotty, I believe.
0: Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, you actually, I was going to ask about flying into winter storms and any advice you may have for folks um, who are interested in this. But since you just an- answered those uh, both questions, I'm going to go to question number three before uh, we kind of wrap up. Um, Inquiry Minds wants to know when you guys aren't in the heart of hurricane season and uh, there's not always winter storms to be flying into, what do you guys do in the Per se, off-season.
2: Oh, the off-season is when we get our research done. So all of that data that we collected, uh, we use in our research. And uh, so we uh, will go back through all the data and identify which cases might be useful for us in our various different research projects. And we write papers. We present at conferences. And then we prepare for the next hurricane season.
0: And so kind of going off of that, looking forward to next year that you say i preparing for the next hurricane season. What all does that entail? I mean, do you, you guys, are, are you basically kind of teaming up, you know, this is how many missions you may get to fly or, or what, what does that look like preparing for, for the next hurricane season? Uh, the past two years, it w- was pretty busy and then it was, Uh, before that was kind of quiet so what how are you guys gearing up for for next season and um early indications do you think you'll be just as busy as you have been over the past two years
2: so that's the thing is we never know what the season's going to bring so we try and uh like i said earlier write up our experiments to cover any a huge variety of storms that we may encounter and uh, just hope that we get some storms that are within range. You know, we we would prefer storms that don't impact land but are within range for our aircraft. Um, But it's really just making sure that we're ready to act when a storm happens.
0: That's some great um, information, Heather. Um, If our followers uh, who are watching tonight or maybe uh, some folks who are listening on the podcast, if they want to learn more about the research that you're doing, uh, is there any websites, maybe social media accounts uh, that you would recommend for our followers to maybe uh, follow or or maybe get more information?
2: Yeah, of course. So um, the Hurricane Research Division does have a website with all of our data that we collect is available on there along with information about the type of research that we are pursuing, and uh, details about all of the different people that work at the lab, um, along with other things. Um, So if you just Google the Hurricane Research Division, you should be able to find that website. But we also have social media accounts on both Facebook and Twitter. Um, Our Twitter account is most active during the hurricane season. When we're out flying, we like to try and post as many Uh, pictures and videos and information about the storm as we can to keep people informed. Um, And you can also get some information from the official NOAA Hurricane Hunter webpage, which is uh, run by the Aircraft Operations Center, and who are the people that maintain and operate the aircraft.
0: Yeah, and you guys follow that Twitter account because when they are flying into these hurricanes, it's where you see some of the cool stadium-style photos and and penetrating through the, uh, the eye wall, some great uh, pictures and videos that, that you all are able to produce um, in that. So, Heather, we appreciate your time tonight. Feel free to stick around if you want to. Uh, we're going to uh, go to a quick break. While we do that, we're going to replay – our uh, winter storm uh, review that we had here in the Carolinas. And then after that, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we all experienced and maybe the potential of seeing some severe weather and flooding towards the weekend. Hey, everyone. Meteorologist Scotty Powell here. It's about 12.15 in the morning. We're finally starting to see... Uh, the snow come down as you can see behind me. What it looks like here on the ground, I don't know if you can tell, but uh, we are already starting to see the ground coated with snow here. A little after 3 a.m. was actually asleep and uh, my power's out. Uh, conditions really have went downhill and uh, honestly in a short amount of time. As of 7 a.m. it was uh, we measured nine inches of snow here in Morganton, so uh, we're well on our way to get those double-digit figures that uh, that we were that we were thinking so our roads are very treacherous out here uh, snow covered roadways everywhere we've seen a lot of stranded vehicles here in morganton we've surpassed the foot of snow last measurement about 13 inches and the snow continues to fall We've not really mixed with any sleet. It's been an all snow event. Hopefully, we continue to stay like that over the next several hours.
5: Hey everybody, Carolina Weather Group's James Briartin coming to you live from South Charlotte. We're in very South Charlotte. By this point in the day, you probably know It didn't make it very far south here into the Charlotte area. The good news is here in the Charlotte area, uh, the good news is in the western North Carolina mountains, the main moisture is moving out. We're expecting to see some moisture during the morning commute or so, and depending on what those temperatures are like, it could be somewhere in the form of rain or sleeting rain or even some snow in those higher elevations. All of this is going to freeze. This is going to probably be a sheet of ice by the time we go into the overnight. Mooresville came in with about 8 inches of snow. Uh, As we continue up 77, Winston-Salem, 15 inches of snow. That's a lot of snow! Uh, Lenore, as we make our way into the mountains, 18 inches. Boone, we're measuring in feet, 1 to 2 feet depending on where in Boone you were and the elevations there. You've been seeing the pictures on our live stream for the last 24 hours or so. Uh, Greensboro, a foot of snow. Put of snow in Greensboro in December. Durham and Raleigh, who initially, initially earlier in the week, we didn't think Durham and Raleigh was going to get a lot of snow. Durham 9 inches, Raleigh 6 inches of snow. Uh, We've got snowfall accumulation numbers coming in as far to the east as Greenville, North Carolina, Interstate 95 with an inch of snow. And while we're at it, Greenville, South Carolina, about 5 inches of snow. North Carolina officials letting us know that cumulatively across the state, 200,000 people remain without power because of this storm. Uh, Scotty Powell, our panelist in Morganton, uh, I believe is one of those. And so as folks go into the overnight hours, we do hope you stay warm. We will be issuing uh, podcast updates. Hopefully you've been checking out the live cameras on our Carolina Weather Group uh, face, uh, Facebook page here and YouTube and Twitter. For now, for South Charlotte, I'm James Brier for the Carolina Weather Group.
0: So as you can see, it was a very busy uh, weekend for a lot of folks in the Carolinas, myself uh, included here in the foothills, where uh, we saw a range between 14 to 16. We did see a few 18-inch reports of snow uh, in the foothills. The mountains were approaching 18 to 20 inches. I know the uh, the big story was Jim Cantore was up in Boone. So uh, anytime Jim's in town, you always know Uh, there's going to be chaos that ensues. And I I know uh, speaking to a few friends up in the Boone area, uh, they really enjoyed having Jim around, and Jim was really uh, happy to be in Boone. So uh, that was really cool for for Boone to get that publicity. Uh, But, James, I'll bring you in as we left the snowy foothills and um, Interstate 40 corridor here in western North Carolina up through uh, Greensboro and Winston-Salem. Once you got into the Charlotte area, towards raleigh the snow kind of transitioned into more of a sleet and freezing rain yuck fest for you guys
6: yeah and i think you saw that in the video we just watched too where i live in south charlotte we got just a trace of snow and a trace of ice at best we did get a lot more just liquid precipitation you know it was probably disappointing to some folks although the kids still head off on monday uh you know we did talk about it all week long in the forecast in that we knew somewhere there was going to be a very steep drop off in that precipitation type between frozen precipitation and liquid precipitation and you know although we did not know exactly where it was going to happen I did kind of feel like we were probably going to be on the liquid side here along that state line. You know, Raleigh was kind of the tale of two cities as well, too. When you look at the Triangle, when you look at Charlotte, they both kind of had one side of town, which was pushing a foot of snow, and the other side of town, which had nothing, uh, which is kind of the classic way all of these snowstorms always seem to work out. Just that Interstate 85 corridor seems to be right where the cold air and the warm air always seem to meet up, Scotty.
0: You're right, James. And it's funny because... There's nothing really special about Interstate 85. It's just kind of a landmark that we, that we kind of correlate things to. Mother Nature has no idea there's an interstate there. It's just, it seems like nine times out of 10, that's where the battle always lines up there on Interstate 85. Um, as the system moved out um, Monday, Monday evening, I'm going to bring in Chris and Melissa. You guys actually got to experience a little mixed precipitation as well in the uh, Columbia area.
4: Yeah, yeah, Melissa did. I, she lives about to, I don't know, fifteen minutes north of me. She got snow uh, snowflakes and uh, mix at her house for probably I don't know. Melissa what was it, an hour we were talking, and yeah. uh, I've I never saw a snowflake in Casey. So you know, bus kill.
1: But one good thing was we got a lot more people up on MPing. Yeah.
4: Yes. So <laughs>
3: that that in itself was amazing to actually see. I mean, we had been promoting m before the storm, trying to get people to report the precipitation type to kind of figure out where that transition zone was going to set up. And, um, you know, I reached out to, um, you know, the uh, National Severe Storms Lab to find out actually how many m reports were made during that storm in the Carolinas, and I haven't heard back from them yet. But just looking on, um, you know, our radar scope app and looking at the number of impings that were coming across, even the, you know, uh, Monday Monday evening when we had that transition area, it was amazing to see those reports come in. So thank you, everyone, who downloaded the app and used the app over the last couple of days. It's definitely um, provided a lot of information, um, and we will continue to ask you to use that app as we move through the rest of the uh, the winter here.
0: Definitely, so and then I wanna to toss it down to uh, Jared and Shay for a little bit, and then we'll kinda of look at some of the uh, snowfall totals. Um, you guys really wasn't expecting wintry weather, but the concern for you all was the flood potential. And Jared, we were talking before the show, thankfully it wasn't as bad as what well it could have been.
7: Yeah, absolutely, Scotty. You know, and, and and kudos to the city of Charleston. They uh, they took the threat very seriously. There were signs in the guidance three or four days out. Of major saltwater flooding was going to occur in the city, and they were prepared. They were on it. it, even though it was a Sunday morning. But they were on it. They had pumps in strategic locations. They were ready to close roads. Uh, they were getting things. Um, you know, they was getting everybody squared away. They had parking garages open, ready for ready for residents, So that was really good. I was really uh, pleased with that. And again, it did not turn out as bad as it could have. Yes, there were road closures. Um, and, and that is to be expected. Whenever the tide hits eight foot in Charleston, the roads are going to close in some form or fashion. It's a thing. It's just going to happen. And you can't completely avoid it. But there were very few road closures. They had the pumps in place. We were pumping out that water the heaviest rain missed high tide by about two hours which was good still flooded a few streets but that drained quickly as the tide was headed out then so really dodged a bullet on that when we were thinking that it was not going to be such a great sunday morning um in the low country and it turned out okay
0: it did and uh james i don't know if you got that link i posted in our, our chat here but i was going to show you some of the snowfall totals uh, that we saw in the uh, the Greenville area. There they are, and I couldn't find the Blacksburg office. I was gonna show some totals, but as you can see, we had a couple of places to highlight. You can see down here towards the South Carolina North Carolina line near Saluda Interstate 26 as it moves uh, from the state into the mountains. They saw close to about 22 inches. Uh, the main um, snowfall winter, which is not uh, on this map, was Mount Mitchell, and that was um, 34 inches, I believe, uh, of snow, and it was just short of a record for uh, the state of North Carolina. So a lot of snow, but as you can see from McDowell County and Burke County over into Caldwell, Alexander, Catawba, up into northern Iredale and Davy County, there was a good swath of anywhere between 12 to 18 inches of snow uh, which was a pretty significant snowstorm for those areas and Chris uh, you put a post on your uh, South Carolina weather page And I'll let you talk about we see one noticeable gap uh, Just north of Asheville and uh, you up a uh, wrote up a good blog about that So you want to talk to us about uh, the upper uh, French Broad River Valley why they did not see as much snow as um, other places
4: Absolutely, Scotty. So uh, uh, James, if you could pull that map back up and uh, I'll just kind of tell us right with uh, what you got on the screen here. Thank you. But uh, if if you guys are looking here, you see that big circle in Western North Carolina and uh, where there's hardly no snow, you know, no big snowfall accumulation. And uh, one of the reasons for that, and probably the biggest reason is if you look at the uh, geographic area surrounding that, uh, that general, uh, you know, local area, Scotty, uh, you just said the the locations i'm not real familiar with western north carolina but anyways long story short they're all surrounded by uh, you know some of the higher peaks up in the uh, southern Appalachians, uh, you know mitchell and uh Cleanman's dome mount LeConte, and then down uh you know in the brevard cashiers over to caesar's head uh, you know th- it just basically surrounded uh, that valley and as that storm approached uh basically what happened uh, you got orographic lift occurring with the mountains which causes a, you know, enhanced lift when, and then the air cools adiabatically. And and as that happens, you get more, basically the mountains are able to get all that moisture out of the air before the the, the air goes over to the other side. And so, you know, by the time that air, you know, traveled over those really high peaks like Mount Mitchell and and Leconte and down toward Cashiers, uh, it, it just had no moisture left. So their totals were about nil.
3: So I kind of want to piggyback on some of those snowfall totals. Um, the official total, the storm total, and the month total at the um, Greer, um, the Greer office, National Weather Service office, of four point three inches is actually the second snowiest that they have on record. It's um, the, the record is a, a little over 11 inches in 1971. That record goes back to 1962. So if they get another snowfall, I mean, I don't know if they'll top the 11 inches, but they are already, um, you know, the second snow is December on record. And one of the other things that we um, are looking at, too, is we're also looking at an extremely wet start to December Across the entire uh, region, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, and that comes on the heels of Florence and Michael. Um, multiple systems coming through the area, so we are definitely dealing with um, a lot of moisture already on the ground, and it looks like we may get another in two inches or more in certain locations this weekend. And that's going to increase the flood risk when you have those warm temperatures with the melting snow and then, of course, the rain on top of the melting snow. And we could be looking at some problems, especially in the um, western parts of South Carolina and in western parts of North Carolina.
0: Yeah, and I'll mention to James, James. I've just dropped two more links in there. So if you want to pull those up, Um, you know, Melissa, you were talking about We're doing this off the cusp of that's That's why we're talking back and forth to the producer and also uh, doing the show here. Uh, The the flood risk, the uh, weather prediction center, which issues, um, you know how we get marginal, slight, moderate risk for severe weather. Well, the weather prediction center, issues these for excessive rainfall and flash flooding potential basically and as you can see uh, over the weekend there is a slight chance of seeing flash flooding now this is a level two out of four and not the one through five that we do in severe weather but we only have four tiers in the flood threat so uh, this is a level two out of four and the slight risk extends basically from the escarpment of the blue ridge that's the foothills on eastward towards Uh, Central North Carolina, most of South Carolina and into the coastal plain of North Carolina and South Carolina. So uh, I'll tell you here, I've still got like eight, nine inches of snow on on the ground here at my house. So we're going to get that rain and that's going to melt a lot of this snow. So the potential for flooding is a big concern. And I will say back in 2016, I believe, uh, we had a similar setup like this where we had snowfall one weekend And towards the end of that week, we had a heavy rain event and it caused widespread flash flooding in western North Carolina in the foothills. So uh, that event back in that February of 2016 kind of rings in the the back of my head of what could potentially happen uh, towards the end of this week into early next week. And also, Jared, uh, not only do you guys face that flash flood threat, but you're also facing the potential for some severe storms.
7: Yeah, that's a slight chance there. Um, you know, it's 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 one of those things, anytime that you get uh, one of these uh, winter storms here often, uh, when we get that south to southeast flow off of the ocean, it's warmer than it it can be uh, it would be transporting in a lot of warm air and warm and moist air. And we have that risk just at the coast there. I'm going to um, talk about that real quick. Let's pull up the SPC uh, outlook if we've got it there. Um, we have a marginal risk that just skirts the coast from, uh, Georgia to, uh, South Carolina to North Carolina. Yeah. And there we go. We've got it up there. And so you can see just that marginal risk there. And, and and the thing that you have to look out for, um, is if we get a little bit of that instability coming on shore, that, that means, you know, scattered damaging winds, isolated damaging winds, and maybe a tornado, um, you know, you can never rule that out, um, when you have the uh, pretty favorable shear profiles. However, the chances are small, chances are very small. I was looking at some of the model data earlier and while the NAM gets very excited about severe weather, it often overplays uh, severe parameters uh, in our neck of the woods. the globals are not as much on board with something like that, but when you when you're dealing with a pretty substantial, uh, you know, a pretty well stacked storm, uh, very uh, substantial cutoff low, uh, so plenty of divergence to aid very efficient rainfall production. Uh, you know, the atmospheric moisture is going to be very high for December. And, um, you know, and again, you know, that we have a little bit of instability coming in from the south. That is certainly something that we're going to need to watch. What could happen is that Florida could cut us off. Um, As as often happens, you get convection along the Gulf Coast and that will shut down any severe risk further to the north. So we'll see how that plays out. Again, you still have you have a marginal Uh, risk from Florida all the way up to the North Carolina Outer Banks. Um, We'll see how this plays out. We have a few days to look at it. Uh, We'll get some more data in, see how the higher resolution models uh, suss this out. Certainly something we're going to watch, but nothing to freak out over. I'm definitely much more concerned about the risk for heavy rainfall and flash flooding in the Charleston area. I guess the good news is, is that no significantly crazy high tides.
1: Yeah, that's right, Jared. Just just to add to that real quick, uh, we saw last time, we had storming, we look at our cooler shelf waters and we look at any kind of onshore winds that may stave off that convective feed over the, up into the Charleston area. A lot of times if you get onshore winds, uh, that, that undercutting cool air feeding into the storm through the updrafting process tends to fizzle those out. But what we do find is later in the afternoon to the evening when we get the atmospheric conversion, we end up getting those storms at nighttime. So we'll have to watch for that. If there's any convective properties at night, early in the morning, just before sunrise, sometimes we get one more last little shot at it and um so i think
4: chris wanted to add something here as well yeah absolutely shay thanks so much uh sorry i was t- typing the scotty in our intro chat here but uh, uh just to tag on to what jared was saying uh, you know as far as the moisture and stuff uh, looking just at our daily rainfall here in columbia this is from our friends over at nws columbia so far in columbia through the first 10 days of december we're on the We're on track for the fifth wettest December on record with 3.49 inches of rainfall. And, and, uh, you know, that's left a lot of the rivers at flood stage. Uh, The Congaree River at Carolina Eastman has been at a moderate flood stage since, uh, I think, Sunday morning. And it looks like it's going to remain that way at least uh, probably through most of the day on Friday. And uh, just something really interesting about this, I put it on Twitter earlier. And just to give you uh, guys an idea of how much water is, it, this involves just the carolina our country river at carolina eastman uh since uh, the last 70 hours about 85 billion gallons of water has flowed through there use, just using the calculations so it's an incredible amount of water and you know it's all coming to you jared and Shay. so definitely going into this weekend something to uh something to monitor
7: yeah, we've got rivers in flood all over the place. Um, you know, the Santee at Jamestown, I think, is still uh, – uh, there's still flood warnings going on for that, Shay, right? I mean, I, yeah, I want to say there, there are. PD, PD area,
1: all the way to the yeah. coast of Conway. you got to worry about the watershed effect up to the north. But once you get a little further south, um, the watershed effect kind of drops off a little bit, unless we get more of that um, upstream. The Savannah River swells. Um, we also get the uh, Stono River. Uh, that swells out so the yeah the um, ace basin area so the estuaries but it's
7: usually not as bad as our neighbors to the north
1: so we have to really be we have to be watchful for that especially in the and pd areas
7: yeah and and one last thing you know to go along with what chris had to say charleston is on track for number three so far first 10 days of uh 2018 of december 2018 4.08 inches at the airport Uh, only behind 2016 with 4.13 inches and 2009 with 4.46 inches. So it's been very soggy. There's a lot of water still standing in a lot of spots. And so we're going to get another one to two, maybe even more on top of that. So uh, really watching that flood threat closely.
0: And as producer James would say, our current warnings are scrolling on the Left side of the screen. So uh, those are the current flood warnings that are in place over the Carolinas, and uh, we definitely could add on to those uh, throughout the weekend. So that is uh, kind of the weather recap of what happened last week and what we're looking forward to to this week. Uh, for next week's show, it's actually open mic night. We don't have a guest. That will next week will be our uh, our last show of 2018. We'll take off the. Uh, week of christmas and the week of new years uh to kind of get refreshed and have some time with family and friends but we are going to have a uh, end of the year special uh review for both of those weeks so we'll still have content we just won't be live uh for those shows for everyone here at the carolina weather group we hope you have a great weekend stay safe out there remember if floodwaters are flowing over a roadway turn around don't drown uh i know it's um you hear it all the time but people still do it and we don't know why so Uh, Never cross those flooded roadways, and we will be back here next week to uh, recap the uh, potential severe weather threat and the flood threat and kind of recap the year of 2018. So we hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group.